Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6. We're working our way through the book of Revelation, so while you're turning there, let me just give you a quick review of what we have seen so far. In chapter 1, John began in verse 1 by saying that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So this book is about things that were going to happen in short order, soon, from when John wrote. And then he says in verse 3 that the time is near. This is going to happen soon, John is saying. The theme of the book was in chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth, or tribes of the land, will wail on account of him. So when it says coming in the clouds, that's language for God arriving in judgment. Specifically, it's judgment, he says, on those who pierced him, which the New Testament writers make very clear means the Jews of Jesus' day who rejected and murdered him. All the tribes of the land, in other words, the nation of Israel, will wail, they will mourn because of this judgment. So the theme of the book is the judgment that Jesus is bringing on Israel because they have rejected him and murdered him. In chapters 2 and 3, then, we saw Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. He evaluates each church, praises them for what they're doing well, corrects them for what they're doing wrong. In chapters 4 and 5, then, we saw the throne room scene, the setting in chapter 4, described the throne room of heaven in terms of its earthly counterpart, the tabernacle or the temple. And in the heavenly temple or throne room, the worship of God is constant. And then in chapter 5, we see the scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And the slain lamb, Jesus, appears as the one who has authority to open the scroll and to carry out its judgments. So the scroll, we said, represents the old covenant, which is coming to an end, and the beginning of the new covenant. The scroll contains the judgments on Israel for their unfaithfulness under the old covenant. That now results in God divorcing them as his wife, and in the new covenant, the lamb is taking a new bride, the church. So now we come to chapter 6, and in chapters 6 all the way through 19, we see the judgments of the scroll unfold. In chapter 6, the first six seals are broken. So there's seven seals on the scroll. In this chapter, the first six are broken. And then in chapter 7, there's kind of a, an intermission, an interlude, before the seventh seal is broken in chapter 8. So that just gives you an idea of where we're at in the book. All right. So in these first six seals that we will see today, the first four of those six seals are represented by four different horsemen. They're sometimes known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They're not these four horsemen. Uh, these are the running backs from Notre Dame from the 1920s that played under Newt Rockne, and they were known as the four horsemen. But that tells you that the culture a hundred years ago was much more familiar with this language, these images from the book of Revelation than we are today. But these horsemen in Revelation 6 will bring a variety of judgments on the land. 
And then for the fifth seal, the scene stays in heaven before in the sixth seal, it comes back to what's happening on the land. All right, so let's take a look. Revelation chapter six, you've turned there. Let's read this chapter. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. Hades is the grave, or the land of the dead. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and calling, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Well, before we look at each seal individually, let's just make some observations in general about this chapter. First, like we've seen in every part of Revelation so far, there's important Old Testament background for us to see. When John sees this vision, you can just kind of put yourself in John's shoes for a minute. He sees this vision and he's groping for words. How do I express what I've seen? And the language that he uses to describe it is language from the Old Testament. He goes back to the scriptures that he knows and to what the, the prophets saw in their visions. And he says, yeah, that's what I saw. It was like this. And he uses their language. And so that helps us when we go back to the Old Testament to be able to understand what John is talking about. John knows his Bible well. One Old Testament passage in the background here is Zechariah chapters 1 and 6. And I'm just going to share with you a little bit from chapter 6. So this is Zechariah 6, 1 through 5. It says, and you'll, you'll hear some of the similarities here. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. 
and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So we have here four chariots with different colored horses, and you can see that it's the same colors, different order, but the same colors, and they're sent on a mission, and they go out to the four winds. In Revelation 6, we've got four different colors of horses and riders sent out on a mission to the earth. Another background passage here is Habakkuk 3, where Habakkuk is praying. I'm not going to have you turn there, and I'm, just, I'm not even going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it. You can go back and read it later if you'd like. But in this prayer, Habakkuk is describing the Chaldeans invading Judah as God's instrument of judgment on his people. Okay? The Chaldeans are invading Judah. And his prayer, Habakkuk's prayer, includes things like a description of God that has similarities to the throne room scene we saw in Revelation 4 and 5. It has descriptions of things like mountains being removed or shaken or leveled. It has judgments like pestilence and the heavenly bodies being changed, you know, the sun, moon, and stars. It has God riding out in judgment on horses and chariots with weapons like bow and arrow. So there's just a lot of overlap in the language that Habakkuk uses there. But Habakkuk is describing the Chaldeans being used by God to judge Judah. John uses similar language to describe the Romans being used by God to judge Israel. So John sees this and he says, we've seen this kind of thing before. And so he grabs that language to describe the vision of what God is showing him. And the last thing that I would want to point out, just by way of background before we look at each seal, is this. The seals in Revelation 6 correspond to the judgments that Jesus prophesies in the Olivet Discourse. So the Olivet Discourse, out of the four Gospels, three of the Gospel writers have this teaching that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives. You find it in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. In the fall, we looked at Matthew 24 in detail. And the reason we did that was to set us up for the Revelation series, to be able to understand it. So the things that Jesus says in Matthew 24 are very relevant for how we understand the book of Revelation. Okay? Jesus, just before his death, is speaking about the judgment that will fall on Israel for rejecting him. Okay? Let me just show you the connections that are here. So in Revelation 6, you can just kind of see there, we've got the six seals listed in the verses that they're found in this chapter, Revelation 6. And we find war and international strife and famine and pestilence and persecution and decreation. When I say decreation, that's the language of, you know, the stars falling from the sky and the sun being blackened and the moon turning red and things like that. Well, if I add Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find the exact same things even in the exact same order. It's the same pattern. And I don't think it's any coincidence that what John describes here in Revelation 6 corresponds this closely, literally in the same order, to what Jesus described in the Olivet Discourse. Remember, when we looked at the Olivet Discourse, we noted John's the only one who doesn't have it in his gospel. 
But of those four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John was the only one that was actually there. He was present for it. He was there with Peter, James, and Andrew. He certainly understood his importance. So why does he not include the Olivet Discourse in his gospel? And the answer to that, I think, is the book of Revelation is his Olivet Discourse. It's expanded, it's a visionary form, but he's giving us Jesus' teaching about coming in judgment in 70 AD on Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple. So all of that's a little bit of background to what we're seeing in these six seals. So now let's look at each individual seal. And this is just going to be kind of a quick survey of what's each, what each one signifies, along with what it kind of teaches us in general about God. All right, the first seal is the rider on the white horse. He carries a bow, and he's given a victor's crown, and he conquers. The seal indicates the beginning of the Jewish war a few years before A.D. 70. Specifically, I think it signifies Vespasian, the Roman general who is commissioned to attack Israel. He comes down through the land of Israel to begin the attack against Jerusalem. And the white horse probably represents victory. That was a, a very common association in the ancient world. Victorious generals would often go back into their city riding on a white horse. You can think of the Lone Ranger and his white horse, Silver. They're always victorious, if that helps you to remember it. Okay? And he's carrying a bow because it's a symbol of war, but it's war from a distance. You don't use a bow and arrow in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's from a distance. In the beginning here of this war, Vespasian works his way down through Galilee, and then he sets up a siege around the city of Jerusalem. It's not yet direct conflict inside the city. And the crown means that God has given it to Vespasian to be victorious over Jerusalem. And so we can learn from this that God may use pagan nations to bring judgment on his people. That's something God does. When God gave Israel his covenant, he told them that he would do this if they disobeyed him and did not repent. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. And by the way, the eagle is the symbol of the Roman Empire. A nation whose language you do not understand. So God even says he'll do this if his people don't repent and turn back to him. So God is the one who controls the events of history. The throne room scene in Revelation 4 clearly paints the picture of God as the one who's in control. So when you and I look around today and we see what's going on, there's war between Russia and Ukraine, there's gas prices and food prices going through the roof, and there's moral collapse in the institutions of our nation, we need to remember that God uses the events of human history for his purposes. And if we who in the past have followed God now choose to reject him, then we should not be surprised when his judgment comes. The second seal, verses 3 and 4, is the rider on the bright red horse. He takes peace from the earth so that people kill each other, and he has a great sword. So the red color probably symbolizes blood as war now comes to Jerusalem. And the sword, like the bow, is a weapon of war, but now it's no longer from a distance. This is hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's close fighting. However, I think this is still before the Romans enter the city. 
This is the Jews in the city turning on each other and fighting amongst themselves. It's civil war. When this all unfolded, there were a number of different factions inside the city of Jerusalem that were fighting for control. And the city of Jerusalem, the Jews inside there, practically destroyed themselves before the Romans ever got in. Listen to how the Jewish historian Josephus describes this. And Josephus is present. He's outside the city. He's present for this. He says, and now, as the city was engaged in a war on all sides, and when he says engaged in a war on all sides, he's talking about the fighting inside the city. He's not talking about what the Romans are doing. He's talking about the fighting inside the city. From these treacherous crowds of wicked men, the people of the city between them were like a great body torn in pieces. The aged men and the women were in such distress by their internal calamities that they wished for the Romans and earnestly hoped for an external war in order to their delivery from their domestic miseries. They're destroying themselves. And note how Josephus describes this. Well, look at what John says about the second seal. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. That's what Josephus says they're doing, killing one another. The peace that had been in place was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But this is a break in the peace, and all that it took to accomplish it was God's restraining hand being removed. When peace was taken away, the people began killing each other. God didn't have to make them kill each other. He just removed his restraint. The Bible teaches us that we are totally depraved. Sin has touched every part of us. Many people think they're good. They're better than those other people. But here we see that when God's hand of restraint is removed, men act on the evil of their hearts. In Jerusalem, in the years leading up to the destruction of the temple and the city, the Jews turned on each other and killed each other. Total depravity doesn't mean that we are as evil as we could be. It means that every part of us is touched by evil. Nothing we do is truly good. Edward Reynolds illustrated this by pointing out that as there is saltiness in every drop of the sea, so is there sin in every faculty of man. It's not that the ocean is as salty as it could be, but every part of the ocean is salty. The same way we're not as sinful as we could be, but every part of us is touched by sin. Sin is not just sinful actions, but it's also sinful desires in the heart. The Jews in Jerusalem displayed sinful actions in their fighting and killing each other, but those actions flowed from sinful desires in the heart, whether it was fear and anxiety, or pride and ambition, or greed and a lust for power. Joel Beakey writes that the heart of sin is sin in the heart. The heart of sin is sin in the heart. In his law, God prohibited sinful actions, you shall not murder, but also sinful desires, you shall not covet. When God removes his restraint, our sinful hearts overflow with sinful actions that arise from sinful desires. The third seal, verses 5 and 6, is the rider on the black horse. And he has a pair of scales and he announces exorbitant prices for basic food items. This is runaway inflation and economic hardship. And the scales symbolize scarcity. 
things being weighed to be sure that they get every last bit they can. The Lord says about Jerusalem through the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety. There's the idea of the scales. And they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. So the price of wheat here in Revelation 6 is over a thousand percent of the normal price. And the point is here that a man's entire work or labor is now spent in obtaining just simply enough food to survive. When the infighting in Jerusalem began, the faction that was led by John of Damascus intentionally destroyed the food supplies of the other groups so that famine and starvation was accelerated. Listen to the description from Josephus again. The madness of the seditious did also increase together with their famine, and both those miseries were every day inflamed more and more. For there was no corn which anywhere appeared publicly, but the robbers came running into and searched men's private houses. And then if they found any, they tormented them because they had denied they had any. And if they found none, they tormented them worse because they supposed they'd more carefully concealed it. Many there were indeed who sold what they had for one measure. It was of wheat if they were of the richer sort, but of barley if they were poorer. When these had so done... They shut themselves up in the inmost rooms of their houses and ate the corn they had gotten. Some did it without grinding it by reason of the extremity of the want they were in and others baked bread of it according as necessity and fear dictated to them. A table was nowhere laid for a distinct meal but they snatched the bread out of the fire half baked and ate it very hastily. Josephus also records that the Romans stood outside the city with their food supplies and waved it around to try to convince the Jews to just surrender so that they could come have food. It didn't work. And here I would just have us observe that economic hardship may be a judgment of God. When Adam sinned in the garden, God cursed the ground. Adam's work became difficult. It was harder to get results, harvests of fruit and grain. When God gave his law to his people, he told them that if they obeyed, they would receive blessing. The land would give to them. That included economic and agri agricultural blessing. But if they disobeyed, they would experience famine and drought. And the land could even vomit them out. And the point is this. The curse of sin devours productivity. The curse of sin devours productivity. And God uses that at times to undermine cultures that reject him. The fourth seal is the final rider, the rider on the pale horse. And this rider is death. And Hades, the grave, follows him. They are given limited authority, a fourth of the land, to kill with four things, sword, famine, pestilence, and beasts. Now turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. 
I have just two places I'm going to ask you to turn this morning. This is one of them, Leviticus chapter 26. So this is the third book of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and you're looking for chapter 26. While you're turning there, let me explain the color of this horse. Depending on what translation you have, it might say pale horse. It might say green horse. Uh, It's a pale green color. The word here is chloros, which is where, like we get the word Clorox. Okay, yes, chlorophyll as well. But Clorox, if you picture pouring Clorox out, it's like that pale green color that we should be picturing this, the pallor of death. That's, that's kind of the color that's going on here. In Leviticus 26, if you look at that chapter, the chapter is explaining the blessings and cursings that come with the covenant. God has given his covenant to his people and they're supposed to obey it. If they obey it, they will be blessed. That's verses 1 through 13. But if they disobey and they do not repent and come back to him, here's what will happen. Look, starting in verse 14, Leviticus 26, 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. So it goes on from there. If they, if they disobey, God says that the bad things that will happen will be because I will do this to you. Okay, so you get that context. Jump down to verse 20. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Okay, so we have famine and economic hardship here. Verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. So here's the wild beasts, which is also part of the fourth seal. And notice, God will strike them sevenfold. How many seals of judgment do we have? Seven seals. As the book of Revelation continues, how many trumpets of judgment are there? There's seven. How many bowl judgments? There's seven. These are covenant curses. Israel is being judged for breaking the covenant. Okay? Now look at verse 23. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you and shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. And you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Sword and pestilence, two more parts of this fourth seal judgment. When I break your supply of bread, verse 26, 10 women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. So again, it's this description of the famine, just like what we saw happened in the city of Jerusalem. So the very things listed in the fourth seal in Revelation 6 are the exact covenant curses that God said would happen to his people if they broke the covenant. And you can see it in other places in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy 28 lists the covenant curses. Ezekiel 14, when God sends judgment on Jerusalem, here's what he says. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment 
sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Okay, so you can flip back to Revelation 6. Did death actually come to Jerusalem like this in AD 70? Well, Josephus describes how the dead bodies were so numerous and putrefied that they had them cast down from the walls into the valleys beneath. And then he goes on to explain, he says, however, when Titus, the Roman general, and Titus is the one, he's Vespasian's son, so when Vespasian gets recalled to Rome and becomes the emperor, Titus takes his place. Okay? When Titus, the Roman general, in going his rounds along those valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven, called God to witness that this was not his doing. God will bring judgment on those who break his covenant. Last week we noted that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. We are all covenant breakers. In that same book, Romans, a few chapters later, chapter 6, Paul goes on to tell us that the wages of sin is death. So our sin, our covenant breaking, the wage that we get for that, what we've earned, is death. Like what we see in this fourth seal judgment. That's the result we've earned by breaking God's laws. And God can't ignore that. God will bring judgment. And the only escape of that judgment is by faith in Jesus, who took the judgment of God on himself in the place of his people. All right, the fifth seal. This is verses 9 through 11. Here we have something new. Rather than riders who are sent out to the earth, we remain in heaven here. The souls of the martyrs are seen under the altar. And the martyrs are those who have died for their faith. They've remained faithful to the word of God. They're Christians, most likely Christian Jews are in view here, and they've been killed for their faith. Okay? And the martyrs cry out for God's vengeance, for God to act in judgment on his enemies. They're given white robes and they are told that they will need to rest or wait a little longer until the full number of the martyrs is complete. The martyrs are given white robes. We've seen that white can indicate holiness and it can indicate victory. Remember the first seal was the rider on the white horse. Okay. Now we're back to white again and we're going to cycle through the colors again. So the parallels look like this. The first four seals, we have the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale green horse. Then the fifth seal, we have white robes. The sixth seal, we have a red moon and a blackened sun. And then in the seventh seal, the green grass is burned up. And it literally does specifically say green grass. It doesn't just say grass. So we're cycling through the colors again here. There is intention and order and design to the judgments of God that are unfolding here. The souls are under the altar. This is the incense altar that's in view. It's the prayers of the saints, and the incense altar represents the prayers of the saints. It's right in front of the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne. And they're crying out, they're asking God to judge his enemies who have slaughtered his people. So who are the enemies that have done this? It's the Jews who have rejected and murdered Jesus. They've now continued to act that way toward Jesus' people. That begins with Stephen in Acts chapter 7, 
who is martyred for his faith in Christ. And they remember these souls under the altar, what Jesus taught in Luke 18. Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. It's not going to be long. It's almost here. Wait just a little bit longer, they are told. And the language that John uses here is from Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, one of the places where these different colored horses are sent out in judgment on the earth by God. And there the angel of the Lord says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? In other words, in Zechariah, the question is being asked, how long until you execute justice and rescue the people of Jerusalem? John now reverses the language. Now the martyrs are asking how long God will continue to tolerate Jerusalem. How long will you put up with them? Isn't it time yet to judge them? Remember, this is the theme of the book. Jesus is bringing judgment on Jerusalem and the temple because they've rejected and killed him. And the martyrs are asking, isn't it time yet? Now, the way that some interpret the book of Revelation, they think this is something that's still going to happen in the future. But John said these are things that must soon take place and the time is near. And Jesus said that God's justice for his people will come speedily. That doesn't mean 2,000 years later. By the time John writes this book, in the late 60s AD, the Jews have been persecuting the Christians for almost 40 years. And here in Revelation 6, those who have been slain are told to rest just a little longer until the full number of their brothers is complete and in A.D. 70 that judgment will fall. And as you look at that seal, hopefully you see God's providence at work. He's the one who's directing human history in his timing. And you see his people's cries for vengeance, asking for God's justice, the martyrs recognize that God is in control. They have their desires, but God's plan is bigger. So they're asked to rest, to wait, to trust him. John Calvin said that when God created the world, he created it as a theater for his glory, a place in which to display who he is. So when God acts in judgment on Israel, as the martyrs are crying out for him to do, it will be a display of his glory, of his justice and his holiness. And in the meantime, while he waits, he's displaying his mercy and his patience and his kindness. And he's giving opportunity for repentance. And both of those things display his glory. The sixth seal then, verses 12 to 17, is the decreation of the world. It's as if the creator is undoing the creation. Earthquake, the moon turns to blood, the stars fall from the sky and the sky vanishes and mountains and islands are moved and the people hide in terror from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of the Lord has come. In the Bible, we often hear of salvation being spoken of in the language of creation. So if any man is in Christ, new creation. Well, the opposite is true when we're talking about judgment. It's spoken of as decreation. 
Here's the other place I'm going to have you turn to. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13. Isaiah is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. And while you're turning, just kind of keep listening, we hear this language, the sun becomes black, the moon is like blood, and the stars fall from the sky. And we say to ourselves, well, that certainly hasn't happened yet. But think about it. If the sun actually went black, what would that mean? It would mean that the fire went out, no more heat and light, we would cease to exist. If the stars actually fell to the earth, well, first of all, stars are a lot bigger than the earth, and they're balls of fire, like the sun. The sun is a small to medium-sized star. If all of the balls of fire in the whole universe literally fell to the earth, what would that mean? The earth would burn up long before any of them actually arrived. Right, what's the point? This is symbolism. This is decreation. It's as if the very fabric of the universe is coming undone. And when the Bible uses this language, now catch this, when the Bible uses this language, every single time it means the same thing. It's talking about an earthly power, a nation or a kingdom, being defeated or being judged. And Isaiah 13 is a good example. That's why I had you turn there. So look with me at verse 1. Isaiah 13, verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. Okay, so what you're about to read is about the kingdom of Babylon. Jump down to verse 4, the middle of verse 4. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. So God is going to war against Babylon. It's coming from the end of the heavens. That's telling you it's coming from God. And this is referenced as the day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment against this nation or this kingdom of Babylon. Jump down to verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So again, we have the language of decreation, describing the day of the Lord, the day of judgment against Babylon. Verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Heavens trembling, earth shaken, its decreation. And now here's the question. How does this actually happen? What means will God use to accomplish this? Look down at verses 17 to 19. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. See, God will use another nation to execute his judgment against Babylon. 
And that's exactly what happens in AD 70. God uses the Roman Empire to execute his judgment against Israel. And John, in the book of Revelation, even refers to Israel as Babylon and Sodom and Gomorrah. I wish I could take more time to explain this. So briefly, just a few points. The heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, represent rulers or sources of power. You can even see that today. Think about the U.S. flag. Right? We have 50 stars on the flag. What do they represent? 50 states, 50 different sources of authority or power that make up the United States. And this imagery was on the temple veil in Jerusalem, as we pointed out when we looked at Revelation 4. So the temple veil has images of the heavens on it. And when Jesus is crucified, what happens to that veil? It's torn apart. Torn asunder. It's as if the very heavens themselves are being decreated. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter says that that's the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And part of what Peter says is being fulfilled is this kind of decreation. Wonders in the heavens, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood. And Peter calls it the day of the Lord. It's foreshadowed at Jesus' crucifixion when things turn dark and there's an earthquake. But it really begins at Pentecost and it comes to its fulfillment in the devastation of A.D. 70 in Jerusalem. What do we learn from that? God is sovereign over all of human history. Clearly, John paints a picture of God being absolutely in control. God's judgment will fall in God's timing. God moves the histories of nations as he wills. Proverbs 21, verse 1, says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Why does John emphasize this? Because he wants the churches to know that God is in control. They can trust him. Justice will happen. God's enemies will not stand, even when that enemy is Israel itself. So the church needs to be patient, to wait a little while longer, but know that God will act. Justice will be served. God's people will be vindicated. Let me give you, briefly, three applications or uses of what we've seen in these six seals. Here's the first one. In the second seal, we saw that we're totally depraved. Every part of us is touched by sin. And in the fourth seal, we saw that God will bring judgment on those who break his covenant. So we'll all face judgment because we've all broken God's law. So obviously, for any here today who have yet to trust Jesus for salvation, this is a call to you to wake up. The judgment is real and God calls on you to repent. You can't be good enough. You won't succeed in this judgment. And the only way of salvation is through Jesus. And for those who do trust Christ, this passage should drive us to gratitude. To remember that this judgment is what we deserve. That's the reason that we escape this kind of judgment. It's not because of anything in us. It's only because of the grace that has been shown to us in Christ. 
Dutch Puritan writer, Wilhelmus Abrakel, said, the proper use of God's providence will render you an exceptional measure of gratitude and will teach you to end in the Lord as the only giver of all the good which you may receive for soul and body. May we be grateful people. Second thing, in the first seal, we saw that God may use pagan nations to bring judgment on his people. And in the third seal, we saw that economic hardship may be a judgment of God. So as we watch the news, we should bear this in mind. Is our economy getting better or worse? That may be the judgment of God increasing on our nation. God's the one who controls the tides of history. And he uses nations to bring judgment on other nations at will. If God put it into Justin Trudeau's heart to have Canada attack the United States and defeat us, there's no power of the United States that could stop it. Now, I don't anticipate a Canadian invasion of the U.S. anytime soon, but if God wanted that to be successful, it would have no chance of failure. Our trust should be in God and God alone. The judgments of God may reveal to us where our faith has been misplaced. Joel Beakey writes that faith breeds a large view of Christ and a small view of self. That's what faith should do in our lives. A large view of Christ and a small view of self. And then finally, in the fifth seal, we saw God's providence and his love for his people, even as he tells them to wait. They cry to him for vengeance. He promises that it will come. And in the sixth seal, we're reminded again that God is sovereign over human lives and history. Is it okay for us to pray for God's vengeance? The Bible teaches us that, yes, this is proper. It's right. Not that we have an indiscriminate hatred in our heart. No. But we can pray that our rulers would repent and that if they don't, God would remove them, judge them publicly so that we learn from it. Jonathan Edwards writes that the believer prays against them, those rulers, not merely as his own, but as God's enemies. And so we're not, we don't pray these kinds of prayers because they've done bad things to me, but because they've shown themselves to be God's enemies. We don't pray out of personal vengeance. We don't pray simply that the wicked would be harmed or made to suffer, but rather, he goes on, he says, the believer prays for God's destruction of them as necessary for his own deliverance and safety and the safety of God's people and of religion itself and for the vindication of his and their cause and also of God's cause. So it's a very Godward mindset that leads us to pray those kinds of prayers. It's another way of saying that we desire to see God glorified and his kingdom flourishing. So as we see, this, see the seals of Revelation 6 broken, as the judgments of God begin to unfold, how should we respond? Prayer, that God's justice would arise. Faith, trust that God is in control. He's guiding the events of human history and of our own individual lives. And gratitude for the salvation that he has granted to us in Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, as we consider the words that John has given us in this vision, this vision of the, the first six seals being opened, and we see what this judgment looks like, there are a number of things that it tells us about you and about ourselves. And I pray that we would learn those lessons, that we would understand who we are in light of who you are. I pray that we would recognize your sovereignty, your holiness, and that we would recognize our position before you as those who have received your grace and your mercy. We don't deserve it, but I pray that we would live out of gratitude for what you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.